This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Allow me, if you will, to tell you a story. And this is a story in which you are the protagonist. Let's say that you have a little coffee shop or maybe a little bar or a small restaurant because you have quit a job that has disappointed you. Or maybe you've quit someone or someone has quit you. And so you've created this little place and it is yours, a dimly lit place that is cozy, it's safe, it's quiet. And it's not that you don't feel pain or anger or sadness, but you think to yourself, you know, who can go on in life burdened like this? And so you think it's better to keep a little distance. And so this little bar, let's say it's a bar, it is a place all your own. And you can be there without, you know, without too many people bothering you. You mix a nice cocktail, you put soothing music, your wings are out of this world. <laughs> and although in the beginning not too many people come, it doesn't bother you. Because slowly that, that begins to change. And really you're, you're doing your thing and you're kind of on your own. And one day, a cat, a stray cat, finds its way into the alley that leads to your place. And she follows it, and she goes in, and she likes it. And so she moves in. And then others follow. And you begin to do a little business. And it's, you know, just enough to pay the rent, but that's enough for you. And so, you know, days go by, a pretty much the same, you know, each day. And then one slow, particularly slow afternoon, you see a little snake. And you don't know what kind it is, but it's probably some kind of garden snake. It doesn't look particularly poisonous. And it makes you think of a legend that you've heard of a snake that has cut out her heart and hid it to protect herself. And the only way to kill this snake is, of course, to find the heart, but she has hit it so well that it's impossible. And you don't know too much about snakes, but you think this is plausible. And as I said, you know, days keep going on, one day very much like the next. And it's not, you know, you're not thriving exactly, but you're not complaining. And then one rainy afternoon, someone walks into your bar and the air in it changes. There's one day a man with a bluish shaved head and a dark raincoat. Or maybe it's a woman with short, stylish hair and cat glasses. And she says, and he says that their name is God Field. And they say, you know, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to close this little bar. 
and you know, you've never seen them before. You have no idea who they are. And you say, why? And they say, there's something. There's something missing. There's something missing. And you look around and you realize it does look a little empty. Actually, not just empty. It's like, like something's been taken out, vacuumed out. And they say, did you notice that the cat disappeared? And she's not coming back. You hadn't even noticed. And you say, well, they're not coming back because there's, the cat is not coming back because there's something missing, and I have to leave because there's something missing? And they don't answer. But after a minute, they say, well, just go far away. Pack a small bag and go. But whatever you do, don't stop anywhere. And on a Monday and on a Thursday, send me a postcard, just so that I know that you're okay. But don't write anything on the postcard. This is very important. Just a blank postcard. And you don't understand. You have no idea what's going on. But somehow you trust this God field. And so you do as he, she says. And you pack a small bag. And you put up a sign that says, closed for business. And you leave. You get on the road. And one night, you're at an inn. And... Right across from you is an office building. And it's later in the day. It's probably late afternoon. And you see people working, and they're just doing office jobs. They're sitting at computers, and some people are typing. A lot of people are just standing around the cooler and talking. But they seem happy. They seem to be enjoying themselves. And you don't understand why this is. They seem to you to be doing jobs that are so uninspired. And you know they're doing that day after day. But they seem good. They seem happy. And this somehow this, this puzzles you. And so that night you decide to send a postcard with a note. Because you just feel like you're going to disappear. And you write you know, just a simple note that you're doing okay. And you're, you'll move on in the morning. And then you go to sleep. And when you wake up, it's the middle of the night, and it's pouring rain outside. And it's that twilight state between uh, dream and, and wakefulness, where you hear something, you hear something outside, and you realize there's a knock on the door. And it's very insistent. And it's also consistent. It's just two knocks. It's like a boom, boom. Boom, boom. And you hear this for, for a little bit, and all of a sudden you know, you know what that is. You know what's outside that door. It's like a beating heart. And you know that you can only open the door from the inside. That's the only way that it can be opened. But you, instead, you turn around and you cover yourself with the sheets. You don't want to get too close. But the knocking now is a little closer. It's right next to your window by your bed. And the pouring rain, and it's that same knock. Dun-dum. Dun-dum. And this goes on for a while, and you try to go back to sleep, and you can't. And finally, at some point, before it's, it's right, it's just before it's getting light, you say to yourself, and very low, only you can hear it. Yes, you say, I feel you. And in that very moment, the door opens a crack.
years ago when I tried to explain to my family why I was in a monastery and what the hell I was doing there. What I came up with, because I, you know, they didn't really know about Buddhism and, and it was too abstract. And so what I thought I could say that perhaps they could, if not understand, relate to, I said, I want to live all of my life. I don't want to just live half. I don't want to live a quarter or a tenth of my life. I want to be there for all of it. I don't want to chop out my heart and hide it behind a closed door so I can feel safe but anesthetized. And this story is very, very, very loosely based on a story by Murakami, Haruki Murakami. But when I read it, it, uh, it did something, actually. It did something to me because I recognized that impulse, that impulse to want to protect, to want to keep just enough distance and I think when we, when we begin to practice, you know, sometimes we are aware. We're aware of these rooms with these, these dimly lit places. And, and we sense, we sense sometimes as we're walking by one of them, we sense this disturbance. But again, you know, we choose perhaps not to see or not to get too close. And I remember for years I had this recurring dream that I was in a huge house, with lots of rooms. And there was this sense that there were a lot of people in the rooms or in the house, but I never saw them. I was always I was always going from room to room to room to room. And at first I thought, well I live in a monastery. I mean of course I'm dreaming about huge houses with lots of rooms. Until I started to realize, no, I'm dreaming about me. I'm dreaming about me moving through parts of myself. And I couldn't find the way out. It was, that was always the sense in the dream, that I was wandering through this house trying to find someone and trying to find the way out, and I couldn't. Of course, I mean, how, how could I? Chopped up in pieces like that. And often we do come to practice feeling split, feeling outside of these rooms with no way to get in and sometimes no way to get out. And yet we sense, I think we do sense that there's something, there's something needed to open the whole thing up. You tear the house down and see what comes of it. But, you know, we don't know how. Or if we do, if we have some sense, we're afraid. We're afraid to. Because... We don't know what we'll find. A couple of months ago, uh, we were working with the kids, and Zen kids, and we were going over the various elements. And the last one in the particular scheme that we were using was space. And we asked a couple of the kids to build a house made of Legos. And they did this beautiful, beautiful uh, one-story house that then one of us, one of the staff, with very little ceremony, proceeded to 
take apart. I tried to tell him, you know, I mean, they spend quite a bit of time on this house. Maybe you should be a little more gentle. But he's not a, he's actually not an ungentle guy. You know, he's very big. He's a, he's a football player. And he just started tearing the thing apart. And I'm watching the kids. Their eyes are going like this. They took it very well, I have to say. The kids, they took it very well. But what we were trying to get at is like, what do you need to take or how far can you go and it stops being a house? I mean, if you take the roof, is this still a house? And they said, yes, it is. Well, so if you take out this door, you know, so, so we were um, basically taking the house down and, and asking, at which point does it stop being itself? And where does that space that fills it begin? I had a teacher like that, a yoga teacher, that would always say that in her classes. She would say, where does your body begin and where does it end? And then she would say, find out. You know, don't assume that you know. Find out. In the Surangama Sutra, the Buddha tells Ananda, take, for instance, a square box, the inside of which is seen as containing a square of air, and square is in quotes. Now tell me, is the air seen as square in the square box, really square or not? If so, it should not be round when poured into a round box. If it's not square, then there should be no square of air in the square box, right? So if it is square, then when you pour it into a round thing, it shouldn't be round. It should keep its squareness. But if it's not square, then there shouldn't be a square when you take away the box. And then he says, Ananda, if you want the air to be neither square nor round, just throw the box away. I love that. Just throw the box away. If you want to be neither angry nor sad, depressed or confused, throw the container away. And I don't mean the feeling. I mean, you would just be dead or you would be a robot. But throw away the the label, throw away the frame, throw away the container. The self is not what we think it is. It can be divided. It can be chopped up. But if there isn't, anything to split, then where does that split come from? Because we all feel it, consciously or unconsciously. We're, always walk- we're uh, all walking around to some extent feeling divided. And so if it's not inherent in the self, then where is it? Sometimes we don't even know about all these rooms. You know, we don't know we're a walking condo and the neighbors aren't speaking to each other. You know, we come to practice and then we start to find, as I slowly did, you know, we're walking through this huge building. And every time we don't like what we see in any given room, we just shut the door and throw out the key. And sometimes we can walk right by it, day after day, without the slightest acknowledgement that it's there. In Mexico, where my mother is buried, uh, it's a a hillside crematorium. And it's, it's in a kind of 
difficult to get to, at least from my perspective, part of the city. And it's, it's built into a hillside, and so you, the, the entrance is up, up at the top, and there's this winding road that takes you all the way down. And on one side is the crematorium and would be what would be all the graves, and there's a chapel. And then on the other side, towards the bottom of the hill, is a set of apartment buildings. And there used to be a huge sign on the outside of the, of the crematorium's entrance saying crematorium, I think it was called the dawn, something like that. And the last time that I was there, I drove right by it. And so I had to backtrack. And I did that a few times. I did that three or four times. I was looking for the sign, and the sign was not there. So finally, I figured out where it was, and I drove in. And um, I said to the guard, I said, what happened to the sign? And he said, oh, well, we took it down because the, the people who are living in the, or who are thinking of buying the apartment buildings don't want to know that they're living right next to a crematorium. And I said, well, but they still have to ride, drive right by it every day. And he said, yes, but that way they can pretend that it's not there. <laughs> right. That way we can pretend that it's not there. So sometimes we don't know and we find out. Sometimes we do know. We start to, to find out when we take our seat. And every time we take the Buddha's seat, as you are doing right now. And what was previously unseen now becomes visible. What was only vaguely felt now becomes known. And you realize, oh... No wonder, no wonder I've been walking around feeling like I am in pieces. Because this is what we create. This is what we create day by day. And of course, we don't want to. I don't think any of us want to say, you know, I, I want to be divided. But in our confusion, that's what we do. And sometimes seeing these rooms is enough to scare us away. I know of many people who begin to practice and get to a certain point, and then it's, it's too much. I mean, there are many reasons. There are many, many reasons why people stop practicing or do something else. But that is one of them. Sometimes we're just afraid of what we'll see, what we'll find out. Yes, there's, there's teachers who have said, you know, better to not start, because then it's hard to go back once you have. That's what I've read writers say about writing. Don't do it if you don't absolutely have to. But if you are returning to that seat, then some part of you has to. And sometimes a period of zazen is all it takes. I was just talking to somebody yesterday who said that the first time she uh, did zazen she afterwards got up and as she was walking away, she said, I don't know what just happened, but I feel like my DNA has been rearranged. And she said, once you start to do it for any length of time, it's really hard not to. It's really hard not to. It's really hard to turn away. And I don't think that's exclusive of Zazen. I think that is any, 
practice that helps you to look closely at yourself, at your mind, at these rooms. And so I think for some of us, we sense that this is what it takes, that this is the way to the medicine. That even if we get lost in the midst of all these rooms, and even if we have to tear down some of the, the doors, that, the, that momentum is towards wholeness, towards needing no containment, no protection, no box, no door, no nets, nets of any kind. I think it's the, the irony of the human mind to feel that distance is what will keep us safe. And the challenge of practice is it's, it's asking for exactly the opposite, really. A, clo- a kind of closeness that most of us experience, experience but in short bursts, or sometimes despite ourselves. And yet, I think we all crave it. Of course, I think we do. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here. Looking, sometimes for hours on end, looking at our mind, how it connects with the body. If we didn't think that getting close to ourselves is how we will get close to others, how we will get close to our own life. They have done studies. Who is this they, actually? <laughs> you know, the, people often say that. Like, you know, they, they have done studies, or studies, but studies have been made. It's so passive. Um, they have done studies. I guess psychologists have done studies about uh, what... What makes people happy, really? Or what are they doing, more accurately? What are people doing uh, when they say that they're happy? And so what a group of psychologists did is they gave people a pager. And you would have your pager, and at eight random times during the day, the pager would go off. And your job was to stop whatever you were doing, sit down, and write in a notebook one, what you were doing, and basically your level of enjoyment and fulfillment with a given activity, one, and two, whether you wanted to be doing anything else at that moment. And what they found was that people consistently, consistently reported feeling most fulfilled, most challenged, most engaged at work. And that also, most consistently, people said they wanted to be doing something else. Isn't that interesting? So when people were at leisure, you know, sometimes they were reading or they were just sitting around watching television, they did not feel the happiest or the most fulfilled or most engaged. But they were happy to be doing what they were doing. And yet they were most alive, you could say, when they were working, but they wanted to be doing something else. So the conclusion that they made was that we're so conditioned. You know, we're so conditioned to take 
that time of doing nothing, my own time, as a reward for all this hard work that I'm being asked to do, that is being imposed on me. I mean, of course, to some extent, I guess I'm choosing to work, but I have to, right? Because I have to pay the rent, I have to pay the, the bills, and I'll do that so that I can get to the things that I really want to do, which turns out to, to be a lot of nothing, even though that doesn't make me happy or fulfilled. Isn't that strange? And then, of course, they uh, interviewed people who did not feel this way, you know, people who, for whom there was no distinction between their life, uh, their work, and their time of leisure. And there was one woman, they asked her, you know, what, what do you do during the day? And she said, well, I, I card wool. She had a farm. And I prune the orchard, and I milk the cows, and I take them out to pasture. And they said, well, what is it that you most like to do? And she said, milking the cows and pruning the orchard and uh, taking the cows out to pasture. And she said, you know, and it was so simple the way she spoke about it. She said, you know, you're out there and you are in nature and you are watching everything and you're a part of things. And, you know, we hear people speak this way all the time. And she said, the, the problem is you get tired and then you have to go back in. And she said, and even when it's, it's very, you have to work very hard. It is very beautiful. She never wanted to be doing anything else, really. And her free time was, you know, she would spend time with her family. She read a lot. But she didn't see it as separate. And I was thinking, you know, that's how I feel about my life, about my work. Even when I have to work very hard, it is, it is very beautiful. And how fortunate it is, actually, to feel that way. And they had a, a little anecdote of a, an astrophysicist. And I hope I can say his name right. Subramanian Chandrasekhar, who uh, won the Nobel Prize in 1983. He created a theory of, of the evolution of stars that led to how we understand black holes. And long before he won the Nobel Prize, he was going to teach an advanced seminar at the University of Chicago on astrophysics, 1950s. And two people only signed up for the class. This meant he had to drive 160 miles through back roads twice a week to teach this class. And so at the university, they expected completely that he would cancel the course. But he didn't. He didn't. And so for one semester, he drove 160 miles twice a week through back roads to teach this class. And the two students that he taught went on individually to win the Nobel Prize. And then later he did himself. So imagine, you know, if he had said, ah, oh, this isn't worth my time. If the Buddha had said, ah, oh, nobody's going to understand. So I just, I won't teach. Well, he did say that, actually, <laughs> in the beginning, but then he reconsidered. To be that committed, you know, that... Uh, but it's, I don't even, I'm not even sure if it's committed. I think that actually comes after. To be that whole, to be that in your life, that you want to do what you have to do. To me, I've, I've always said this, I... To me, that is freedom, to choose to do, to want to do the things that you must do. 
And in the case of the Buddha, it's one person, one person thinking, it's possible to do this. It is possible to wake up. It is possible to be whole, because that's all we have ever been. And I think that is what we're doing when we take refuge in the Buddha, trusting that as the Buddha awakened, that we can too. And I really like, the, there's uh, one account, his, his reflection really of his own path. And I really like this particular wording, uh, wording. He said, before my awakening, when I was still just an unawakened bodhisattva, he was just an unawakened bodhisattva, <laughs> being subject myself to birth, aging, illness, death, sorrow, and defilement, I sought happiness in what was subject to birth, aging, illness, death, sorrow, and defilement. So I'm looking for happiness in those things that cannot, in a sense, by definition, bring me happiness, but this is what I keep doing over and over again. And so the thought occurred to me. Why am I being subject to birth, aging, illness, death, sorrow, and defilement, seeking what is subject to the same? What if I were to seek instead the unborn, the unaging, the unailing, the undying, the sorrowless, the undefiled, unsurpassed security from bondage, the unbinding? I love that word. What if I was to seek what is unbinding, what will make me free? Not make me free, what is free already, what has always been free. What if I was to seek that? And you know, the good news, as Shugen Sensei always says, is that everything you need to do this, that's it. You already have. I mean, you just need your body and your mind. A cushion helps a little bit. Inspiration, now and then. A teacher definitely, definitely helps. But ultimately, all that it takes is for you to sit your butt down and turn the light around to be willing to get close, to be willing to see that the less distance, the more life. You know, the Zenda could remain empty for years, for decades, for centuries. And if one person was to stumble in and dig through the rubble and find a seat and sit down. If they were in the middle of a field, or I don't know, in the corner of a space station, wherever we're going to find ourselves, hopefully, a few hundred years from now. The moment that person sits down and turns inward, the Buddha Dharma is right there. Because it's not square. Around, you know, it's not contained in this room. It can be poured out, but it can be realized. And that's what one person knew somehow. And what all these men and women, for you know, significant amount of time now, twenty five hundred years, have continued to realize and practice, and then bring to life that wholeness.
So let me leave you with a poem by W.S. Merwin. It's called Cold Spring Morning. I thought it was appropriate. (laughs) Hopefully one day it will no longer be a cold spring morning. One day. At times, it has seemed that when I first came here, it was an old self I recognized in the silent walls and the river far below. But the self has no age, as I knew even then, and had known for longer than I could remember. As the sky has no sky, except itself, this white morning in March, with fog hiding the barns that are empty now, and hiding the mossed limbs of gnarled walnut trees, and the green pastures unfurled along the slope. I know where they are, and the birds that are hidden in their own calls in the cold morning. I was not born here. I come and go. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.